friends, and welcome back to Lingering on the Lectionary, where we reflect on the life of the churches, the local academy, and the rhythm of the church's liturgy. Thanks for being here. Today I talk with Dr. Ronnie Kurtz about his new book on the fruits of the Spirit and theological discourse. We also discuss some of the ways that the study of theology can produce joy and hope in our lives as believers. Thanks for listening. Awesome. All right. Welcome back. Thanks for joining us. I'm glad to be here today with my colleague and friend, the one and only Ronnie Kurtz. <laughs> Thanks for having me, man. Yeah. Long time no see. That's right. Yeah. It's been a uh, solid 30, 40 seconds. Yeah. Several, several minutes. This is also uh, a part of my, I think I mentioned, this is the way that I uh, deal with my social anxiety and social distance. I'm happy to chat with you, but you need to get out of my space. <laughs> I bet if we uh, if we talked just loud enough, we could actually hear each other down the hall. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's right. <laughs> All right, so today we're going to discuss some of your recent work in theology and the Christian life. But first, could you introduce yourself a bit and uh, tell us about what you teach and what your researches, research areas are here at Cedarville? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I joined the faculty here at Cedarville in Ohio in January. Um Finished up my, my PhD at Midwestern Seminary, wrote my dissertation on immutability and how that impacts questions pertaining to salvation and what an unchanging essence might mean for the economy of redemption. So that's kind of what I researched in my doctoral program. Uh, here at the university, I, I primarily teach Theology one and Theology two in Cedarville's Bible Minor program. Uh, which has been a lot of fun. I'm, I'm only in my second semester, but uh, it's been a great transition. The Lord's been very kind to my family and I. Uh, we're just so enjoying it. Good colleagues help. Uh, so appreciate you, Chad, and and the others. Are just Yeah, yeah they, thanks they, for specifying. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you should have assumed any compliment yeah. <laughs> to the faculty in general is to you specifically, without a doubt. Um, no, my research interest uh, really, the it's kind of a silly way to say it, but kind of what I tell people is, if you boil it down, what I'm really interested in is divine action. And so theology proper more broadly is kind of what I care about. But most of my research is really me just asking, how does this God act in that way? And so, if, for example, my dissertation is me asking, how does this God, by that I mean unchanging God, act in that way? And by that way, I mean in the economy of redemption. And so it really is um, kind of theology proper, divine actions, where I spend most of my time. Okay, great. And you said you had you have family. Yeah, so I have a, a wife and a two-year-old daughter who is amazing and just a lot of fun. So her name is Finley, and my wife's name is Kristen. And uh, yeah, they're a joy. They might. I'm hoping they don't, but they might burst in, interrupt this podcast recording. Oh, good. Yeah. So actually, the quality would drastically increase if they. Yeah, did. yeah, that's right. Yeah, I'll be. Uh, I'll stop talking to you and I'll start interviewing them. Um, yeah, so. please do. Yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, yeah, thanks for uh, coming on. Today we're going to talk about your uh, book that's about to come out in a couple weeks, uh, Fruitful Theology, How the Life of the Mind Leads to the Life of the Soul, uh, coming out with B&H. So what would you say are some of the core claims you make in this book? And um, maybe like, what are you hoping to accomplish uh, with yeah. this book? Why, why did you write it? Yeah, absolutely. This this one's a little different because it's, um, it's a trade level book. It's not an academic book. Uh, the I'm purposely writing to a much broader audience than I typically do with kind of my research writing life. And the goal 
really is, I kind of have two people in mind when I was writing Fruitful Theology. The first was those who might be intimidated by theology, see it as something kind of stale and cold and kind of unaccessible in a way. Um, You know, don't think they have the qualifications to pursue something like a theological life. Um, So really for those who are just maybe intimidated by theology a little bit. The second group of people are, and this is the primary group that I was writing to, are those who are fine enough with theology, but they are a little bit discouraged or just kind of disheartened by what we see taking place by way of theological discourse today. Um, So kind of the overheated, exaggeratory, biting, sarcastic kind of dialogue we see happening largely online and in local churches, those kinds of things, and just basically are at this point feeling a touch exhausted by it. Like if that's if that's what a theologian is, then I'm just not interested in being that. And so the goal there was basically to show how uh, not only should it not be this way, but actually theology done well should should be person forming the opposite direction. That theology done well, a a life spent in contemplating the Lord and all things in relation to the Lord, should actually lead to those string of virtues that make up the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control, gentleness. Those are not words we often think about when we think about modern theological discourse. Mm -hmm. Uh, Gentleness and kindness are typically not what come to mind. And I think that's a shame. And the hope... I know that I can't change that with a book, of course, but the hope is that the book would be a small a small shot in the opposite direction to show that theolo- theology done well for the glory of God and for the good of your neighbor can actually lead to love and joy and kindness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that kind of addresses the tragic irony of an arrogant or impatient theologian. Exactly. Um, right. Yeah, because yeah, I think, uh, as you mentioned, there's lots. Some people are intimidated by theology, um, but there's others that are either intimidated or disappointed in theologians. Um, That's exactly the way right. that they're uh, acting, uh, either in person or online. Um, so I appreciate I appreciate the heart of the book and the way that it's uh, directed. In your opening chapter, you say that the Christian life calls for a multifaceted maturity and wisdom. Uh, so maybe we could start here. Uh, what do you mean by a multifaceted maturity in wisdom? And, you know, uh, how does this mindset relate to the study of theology or just the theological task? Yeah, that's a good question. I, um, I really am trying to avoid two ditches with a phrase like that. The first, and for anyone who reads the book, I, I talk quite a bit in the book about what theology cannot do. I think part of my worry is that we're asking from theology that which it's not prepared to give us. Mm -hmm. So I make very clear, at least in the way that I conceive of theology, that theological contemplation or just the theological life in general uh, is not an end in itself. We're not after theology. What we're after is God. He's the ultimate prize, the ultimate reward, and the ultimate one we want to spend our days contemplating. Theology is useful in so much as it gives us God. Uh, and all things in relation to God. And so one of the things that I'm trying to say in that particular phrase that you quoted is we cannot, on the one hand, equate Christian maturity 
with theological knowledge. Uh, Christian maturity, sanctification, and holiness is simply much deeper and much more grand than knowing facts about the Lord. And so I don't want to communicate, and communicating that theology is important. I don't want to communicate that Christian holiness is synonymous with knowing theological terms or vocabulary. Uh, that's just not true. That theology can't give you stability uh, in a way that a more holistic Christian wisdom and maturity can. So I'm trying to, on one hand, say, don't make theology everything. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I'm trying to say, uh, you're going to need to equip and use theology for the sake of Christian maturity. So maybe the best way to say it would be something like, Christian theology is not a sufficient ingredient for a holistic maturity, but it is a, necess- it is a necessary ingredient for mm-hmm. Christian maturity. It's not enough. You need more than that. You need relational wisdom and emotional wisdom. You need healthy relationships in your life. You need a good relationship with the local church. And uh, trying to get that out of theology, those kinds of things will set you up for failure. But trying to pursue a kind of relational stability or emotional stability or any kind of stability without theology is also probably an unwise task. So that's kind of what I'm after is right sizing Mm -hmm. what theology can and can't do for the for the actual Christian life. Yeah, yeah. So thinking about the not only the great value of theology, but its limitations. Mm-hmm. So if we ask theology to do something that it's not designed to do, um, this can be a problem. But also if we respond uh, by neglecting theology, we're going to be in a, a similar uh, s- similar problem. That's exactly right. Yeah, the answer to bad theology is not no theology. Mm-hmm. So Right, right. I, I also liked um, Jared Wilson's uh, introduction. Uh, the first <laughs> line of that, he talks about the idiot notion <laughs> that strong beliefs are incompatible with a gracious disposition. And I think that's a great point. But it's funny because I opened the book knowing you and I started reading and I was like, wow. <laughs> I just like went for it in this first line. And then I, I was like, oh, this is, oh, this is, this is Jared Wilson. I was like, it makes more yeah. sense. Jared can get away with saying a phrase like the idiot notion and yeah, sound yeah. normal. I just sound like a complete jerk and it would not be uh, in line with how I typically talk. Yeah, yeah that, that's true. But I th- I, th- I like the, uh, the point he makes here. Uh, and that's kind of, uh, I can see you addressing that idea throughout the book. Uh, but this, uh, the notion that uh, strongly holding to a particular set of beliefs and standing firm on doctrine is incompatible with um, gra- a gracious disposition or uh, humility in the way that you engage uh, your opponents or uh, dialogue partners, uh, even just the way that you uh, perceive uh, the other person. Mm. Uh, you say in, in your chapter on peace, I like this phrase that you used, all you need to disdain your neighbor is an internet connection. And that's mm. so true. <laughs> like, that's all you need to do is um, be able to uh, get online, uh, enter into that space. And if you do not have guardrails, uh, it will start to impact your thinking. Um, so I think that's helpful uh, in the way that you've kind of uh, laid it out here with the fruits of the spirit. I want to get to uh, thinking about the relationship of the fruits of the spirit in a minute. Uh, but the way that you kind of posture your book reminded me of uh, Catherine Sonderegger's opening line to her systematic theology, uh, where she says, theology awakens a grateful heart. Um, 
and I think that kind of captures like what you're after yeah. uh, in the book. Uh, but it, it also a few times, and I, maybe we could talk about this uh, reading through the chapter, your chapters, uh, this kind of idea, you're kind of laying out this ideal, uh, but it also clues us into so the, sometimes the disconnect between what theology is designed to do and then what it, how it sometimes functions for us. So like theology awakens a grateful heart. That's a, a statement and an arg uh, essentially an argument for the function of theology. But we all know that theology not only awakens a grateful heart, but mm. unlocks a cynical disposition as well. Um, so how do you how, how do you think through uh, either in the book or just in general what you know theology is designed to do and what theology is uh, and then the disconnect uh, that someone could have right theology and poor practice or, you know, horrible disposition, you know, so how are yeah. you, how are you connecting those two uh, realities? Yeah, that's a really insightful question. Um, let me start it off by saying anyone who picks up fruitful theology, expecting the brilliance of Catherine Sonderegger is going to be majorly disappointed. Um, but I'm honored to even be compared to her in that way. I love I remember when I first picked up volume one, the first systematic, and that's the opening line. You're like, okay, this is going to be good. <laughs> uh, so anyways, to answer your question, it, it's not easy. Like to, to, to diagnose the exact why or even the, to diagnose the how of what you're asking. How does a theology, a contemplation of the Lord, the intellectual life in the Christian faith, how does that show up sometimes disconnected for folks who become arrogant because of theology or divisive. Um, that's not exactly easy because what I would probably say to that question is I don't know that they're finished with theology. And what I mean by that is I've often challenged my students uh, who are, you know, a lot, uh, as you know, teaching undergrad students, they're very excited, which is really fun. They want to learn. They're hungry. They're eager for book recommendations. They want to, you know, spend a lot of time in the scriptures, and it's a it's a blast to be able to shepherd them through that. And sometimes their zeal for theology can grow to the point where they just they want to theologize all the time. And I'll often just remind them like that's a, that's good. That's a good posture. I'm glad that's in you, but just make sure that all of your efforts theologizing are bent towards the glory of God and the good of your neighbor. And I'll challenge them saying, I'm happy for you to simply just theologize for theology's sake. If you can find me, for instance, one example of where Paul does that. And the reality is we know he doesn't, right? Uh, Paul has mm -hmm. written some of the most glorious theological literature in the world. We think of something like Romans and just how brilliant the theology of Romans is. But that was for a church. That was for the church at Rome. And so those theological statements were supposed to have ripple effects both in an ecclesial setting and in individual lives. And so I actually think a theology that doesn't lead to person formation or soul formation is just incomplete. Mm -hmm. It's a theology half done. The intellectual part of theology is not the whole enterprise that is Christian theology. It's definitely a part of it. There is definitely a mental aspect to Christian theology that we shouldn't forsake, but it's not all of it. Christian theology is also about the um, growing in, you know, beholding him from one degree of glory to another. That part of theology is still part of the task. And so to answer your question, how does a disconnect happen? I would just say 
maybe first and foremost is an incompleteness to the Christian life of thinking. Yeah, yeah, that that's I, I like that answer. It reminds me of you know, there's a reason why we call you know someone that just encounters uh, theological formulation or uh, good doctrine. Uh, we talk about the cage stage, yeah. which, um, which means that when somebody comes with a new insight or something, they get really excited about it, and that's awesome, but they also need to be kept in a cage for a few months, um, <laughs> and then then they can be let out. Um, uh, so they're not, you know, I had a student once, uh, we were working through a textual example, and he said, do I need to go, do I need to go talk to my pastor uh, about this uh, from the sermon they preached? And I said, no, 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 no do <laughs> not do that. <laughs> yeah. uh, and uh, sit under that preaching for a couple years and then uh, then go talk to him. But uh, uh, we talk about the cage stage uh, in various situations, but uh, sometimes don't ask uh, why that hap- why that's, why that happens so frequently. Yeah. And I think part of it is kind of what you're talking about is it doesn't take much information to be arrogant. All you need to know is one thing that someone else doesn't know, mm-hmm. and then you can hold it over them and weaponize it. But it takes a lot. It takes a lot more information and experience to be wise. Yes. So the difference. Mm-hmm. It's it's very easy to be arrogant, but it takes a whole lot more uh, to gain wisdom. Mm-hmm. Um, and so. Uh, that I think that's a good transition to uh, kind of the other emphasis of your book. I think I know the answer to this, uh, where this accent in your um, uh, book comes from, but the the relationship of the Christian life to theology proper. So you've you've said it a few times, but you say this is from your intro, and you come back to it in your conclusion. But you say that right sizing God as the subject of Christian theology is of utmost importance. For doing so will distinguish theology from all other intellectual pursuits. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe just thinking about one, how important it is to uh, define theology in the way that you are, uh, mm-hmm. forefronting uh, who God is in and of Himself, and then also specifically um, how theology and the theological task relates to the life of the mind, because sometimes the life of the mind discussion is really talking about like an intellectual life or the yeah. pursuit of learning for its own sake. And then um, large swaths of your book are just talking about the uh, the fruits of the spirit, love, peace, joy. Um, and there are several times where you connect that directly, but how do you see the, uh, what are some of the organic connecting points yep. uh, between theology and the, and the life of the mind thinking in that terms, um, and then just, you know, some of those, uh, how you would respond to that kind of idea. Yeah, I, this is a great question. Um, there's so much that, that we could talk about here, but let me, I hear two really good questions in what you've said. So I'm try to take them each, um, and give adequate time to each one of them. The first about front loading who God is in and of himself and why that would matter for a, for a project like this. Um, I, it's, it's going to be no surprise to anyone who knows me or even who has the eyes to see as they read the book, but I, I'm deeply influenced by John Webster, um, and, uh, his thinking has intermingled with my thinking and I've spent a lot of time just contemplating what he's written and it's, uh, it has kind of sunk deep into my DNA. And so, uh, I literally start the book 
with a quote from Webster and my appendix starts with a yeah. different quote from Webster. Um, so I wanted, it was a little bit of an excuse to bring John Webster to a popular level and uh, trying to smuggle him into more lay level thinking. But the reason that's so important in this book is because the whole point of this book is this theology can change who you are. Theology can actually be person forming and soul forming. And I think considering the person of God, who God is in and of himself is really important. So like, for example, the very first chapter or the very first fruit of the spirit, love. I talk about one of the reasons it's important to make a doctrine of God so prevalent at the beginning of the book is because when we think about a concept like love, well, Christians have a really unique concept of love. It's not simply mm. being nice to your neighbor. When we think of love, we think of an, not necessarily an action that God performs, but we think about his very essence. God doesn't just have love. God is love. Uh, we call this divine simplicity in the in the Christian life. Um, so God is love. So then if, if we consider theology and we define theology the way that Webster does in the tradition of uh, uh, Winnius and Thomas Aquinas and others even before him, uh, that theology is the contemplation of God and all things in relation to God. We'll put those two, put these two propositions together. That theology is the contemplation of God and God is love, right? Those two propositions being put together as the organic meaning point you're talking about. Think about the idea of those two things being true and then your contemplation of God turning you into a hateful person. Like that, that should just be utterly unacceptable to us. If God is love and theology is the contemplation of God, then theology should transform us into a loving presence as theology makes our mind's eye go that direction. And so that's that's one of the reasons I emphasize at the beginning of the book a, a proper definition of theology being God-centered. So that's that's your that's the first question. The second question that I heard and what you were saying that I think is really insightful is kind of what makes this different than just an intellectual virtues kind of book, mm -hmm. um, because it really is. If I think it, I think someone might be disappointed if they pick this book up expecting intellectual virtue discussion, because intellectual virtue discussion typically sounds like, hey, as you think about something, have these characters in mind. And I'm actually trying to reverse engineer the process and say, actually, thinking about this subject, God, will bring about these kinds of virtues in your life, mm -hmm. your mind, your soul, et cetera. So it's kind of a reverse engineering of a intellectual virtues book, and that's on purpose, right? We should, of course, as we go about the process of thinking about God, we should have love and patience and kindness intact. But thinking about God should actually be the impetus that brings that about in us even more than when we started the process. Yeah, and you you kind of run this play in each uh, chapter where you're kind of relating the concept of joy, for example, but then connecting it to, it's not just a joyful feeling or a joyful disposition. In Christian theology, we're talking about something that has substance. Yes. And if that's the case, then it requires theological thinking. So like in two directions, I like the quotation uh, of Jen Wilkin when she says, the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. So there's That's that right. relational part. But also you say this a few times, I just picked out the one from the joy chapter. Um, if joy is, uh, what do you say? If joy is to be all that is meant to be, joy needs roots. And mm -hmm. then you also talk about our uh, 
uh, peace needs to be rooted, mm -hmm. uh, right? So that gives you the disposition. It gives you the fruit of that, but it also connects it to the roots, and that's, that's where right. the theology comes in. Uh, that's right. Before we before we uh, transition to specifically talking about uh, the fruits themselves in that. Um, discussion. I did have a question. One of the key features of your book is, I would call it a theological optimism, where you're working through and uh, very optimistic about the role of theology. In, in some ways, I, uh, if I understand what your project is, as an antidote to cynicism, but also the biting uh, nature of uh, the pseudo-public square uh, yes, that right. we encounter in social media, for example. But um, like you say, at one point, you may have heard it said that you should not impose your theology on the Bible, but instead come to the scriptures with a blank slate ready to be written on. Um, and then you talk about how that's a, a nice idea, but it's it's mistaken in the sense that theology, when it's working correctly, uh, does something different. It, it, it helps us see what's in the text. Um, so throughout your book, I thought you did a wonderful job of giving us some of what that value could look like but mm -hmm. what do you uh what what are some of the ways that you would acknowledge that kind of critique of theology having a fully formed theology and a systematic theology in particular what are the uh, dangers of uh, this discussion either for disposition or just the way that we read the scriptures i have in mind uh, directly the common critique of if you just focus on systematic theology, it's possible to run roughshod over the actual biblical texts because you might That's just right. be thinking, okay, uh, God is simple, and then I construct divine simplicity, and what are the logical outflowing of that? Oh, that he's immutable, that he's, un you know, he doesn't change, that he knows all things. And then in some ways that's true and rich, but in another sense, if you're talking about a particular biblical text, you're kind of, you might yeah. be lifting towards the heavenlies, but you're also <laughs> moving away from that passage that you're talking That's about. That's right. So any ideas about the direction of those reflections? That yeah. Sense? Yep. That makes sense. That, that, that helps a lot. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's, there are so many dangers when trying to make sense of the text, obviously, that we should, as those who want to take the text seriously, work hard to avoid. I do think it is a mistake to act like your presuppositions and your systematic theology don't impact the way you read the text. And those who try to act like they are a blank slate without a theology in hand, I actually think are crippling the hermeneutical process. On the other hand, it is very easy to come with presuppositions so developed that you don't allow you to be the thing that is molded and instead the text is the thing that's molded because the presuppositions are so strong i think having a i mean obviously i'm, I'm a protestant theologian so having a robust understanding of epistemological authority is pretty helpful here i would argue that uh the scripture is the rule that is not ruled of course that there is nothing more authoritative than the scripture nothing as sufficient as the scripture, nothing as perfect as the scripture. And therefore, because it is the word of God uh, and the speech will match the speaker, it is, a, it, is, it is a perfect word and therefore the rule that cannot be ruled. However, at the same time, while I affirm that, I do want to affirm that there are rules that can be ruled. And 
in the in the Protestant and more you know largely global Christian tradition, we have things like Nicaea and Constantinople. We have our own particular denominational creeds and confessions. Those are rules that can be ruled, and in fact, they are rules that are ruled by the supreme rule of the Scripture. And so, I would want to operate with a balanced epistemological notion of authority as scripture as the supreme authority that can't be normed and other rules under rules that can be normed by the scriptures and i think that relationship is really helpful one of the things i try to pull out in other research projects that i have it didn't really come out a ton in fruitful theology because of the lay level um but you can if you have eyes to see you'll see it is the reciprocal relationship between hermeneutics and theology it is the case that we do come to hermeneutics with some theology in hand However, the process of hermeneutics should be molding to that theology, and that's the reciprocal relationship. That relationship of theology and hermeneutics shaping one another is the, you know, the reciprocal relationship that we're going to be in for the rest of our lives as we make sense of what God is saying in his word in a systematic way, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, is that is that a helpful answer? Anything you want to appreciate? Oh, yeah, that's good. Yeah, I was just— okay. uh, thinking about how you would respond to kind of that methodological issue. Yes, yeah. Uh, So let's talk about the fruits of the Spirit themselves. Sometimes the fruits of the Spirit uh, are isolated from their context in Galatians. And I I love the idea, uh, the big big picture of the book, uh, you know, this cornucopia of fruits and then how how that could uh, affect. So it's a good, it's a good rubric for the study of theology in the Christian life, but also to pull those things together. Um, but sometimes, you know, when you put it in a song, you know, the fruit of the spirit's not a coconut uh, type situation. They're uh, easy, just like the 10 commandments or even the Lord's prayer to isolate from yeah. their literary context. Uh, but Paul's discussion of these spiritual characteristics are embedded in a larger discourse in mm-hmm. the letter about the nature of the gospel, the rhythm of the Christian life in Christ. Um, so what would you say are some of the broader themes in Galatians that mutually interpret Paul's discussion of the gifts of the Spirit? Yeah, I I think this is, is really important. Um, what Paul is doing in Galatians is so important, and it, it is easy. I even really struggled with making—I have each chapter is on one of the individual virtues within the fruit of the Spirit, and I struggled— uh, because I'm like, man, I don't want my readers to think of these as, you know, I, I can take option two and four, but I can leave option six and seven. Like, it doesn't work mm-hmm. like that. Um, and I think one of the ways we can keep the the wholeness of the concept of fruit of the Spirit together is by doing exactly what you're saying. Keep the literary context of Galatians together. Because, uh, you know, the fruit of the Spirit come in chapter five, and even somewhat towards the end of chapter five— And one of the things that Paul is doing in Galatians chapter 5 is he is showing the dichotomy of the life in the spirit versus the life in the flesh. Mm -hmm. And that's actually – that becomes a pretty important point in the book because not only does Paul give us, hey, a gospel life leads to a life in the spirit, but a law-bound life leads to a life in the flesh. Not only does he give us that kind of paradigm, but he actually says – each of these has its own fruit. There, there are the fruit of the Spirit, right. which are love, patience, gentleness, kindness, etc. But then there are works of the flesh. And he says among those are things like selfish ambition, envy, um, outburst of anger, division. And what's sad 
is there are serious places in in Christendom today in which that which is being called theology can be more described by those verbs and adjectives that comprise the works of the flesh than the fruit of the spirit. If you think about things like outburst of anger and division and selfish ambition, well, it's not super hard to find theologians, quote unquote, or those partaking in theology who seem to be promoting those kinds of phrases. The other reason it's important to keep the literary context of Galatians in mind is to remind us that there is a pneumatological reality here. These are the fruit of the Spirit. And without the Spirit's help in the process, without the Spirit's indwelling presence in our lives— these are going to be setting us up for failures as goals. We this this must be a spiritual enterprise, um, and I think Paul's dichotomy of the life in the spirit versus the works of the flesh, in its larger literary context, is helpful to keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you make a point um, of that the singular and the plural here. One you mentioned too, pointing out that the works of the flesh are more and varied uh, than there's more of them than. Uh, when you put them next to each other than the fruits of the spirit but in some ways it's the also the importance of thinking about the fruit of the spirit not a you know these discrete entities but these are the things that come from possessing the spirit that's um, exactly right being dwelt by the spirit as, you, as you're mentioning um, so that is even just a the there's a theological reason not to isolate these uh, fruits from one another or from the context. And there's also, of course, a literary theological argument that Paul is making there. Uh, What would you say, though, about when you dig into the fruits themselves, as we move into this, uh, the the fruit salad here, (laughs) what do you think about the uh, structure? Is it like a fruit salad Um, in the sense of like, they're just kind of all glommed there together? But like when you're looking at the list, of, do you think there's any significance to the structure or arrangement of the way that Paul lists these? Um, and then, you know, the the other question is, you know, the the question that all of our freshmen have to ask if they're scoping and hoping for too long. At some point, <laughs> you know, the conversations can, uh, continue, and then somebody has to DTR. You know, that's right. Find the relationship. <laughs> uh, so, how would you how would you define the relationship between these uh, characteristics or these fruits because uh, i think sometimes that particular task is neglected like how do they relate yes. we, we talk about this in the attributes of isolating uh, some of the divine attributes uh, but i think this type of thing can happen even mm-hmm. we're talking about the for sure the gifts of the spirit but also here the the fruits of the spirit mm-hmm. uh, any thoughts on on that yeah so to take the first question any kind of um emphasis or importance in terms of the arrangement i actually do think on one hand, I want to say there's something really important to the arrangement because I have canon consciousness, right, Chad? Uh, and on the other hand, I want to say don't read too much into the arrangement. And here's how I think I can say both. I think there's a serious importance to the fact that love is first and self-control is last. Mm-hmm. I think those two things, I think that matters. I think there's a reason Paul puts love first in Galatians 5. Um and I think it's because of what we see elsewhere throughout the scripture that without love we have nothing. And um, I think that's exactly right. There is a reason I, I even refer to love as the first fruit, um, meaning 
I'm trying to give it some kind of superlative quality there as the first fruit. Uh, I do think self-control being last matters as well, because as you pointed out, there are, when you look at Galatians 5, I think in chapter 1, I give actually a table of the, I think there's nine fruit of the Spirit and something like 16 works of the flesh, or maybe 12. Um, And I think what Paul is doing is he's saying, I, I do think there's some corollary going on. And self-control is something of a catch-all. Uh, I actually think with self-control, if a person has robust self-control intact, they won't fall for any of the works of the flesh. Mm-hmm. And so I do think there's a reason love is first and self-control is last. However, I wouldn't want someone to put too much stock into you know, trying to arrange them or something. I think that could end up being a little bit of a, of a wasted time. And then for your second question about... Um, the relationship between them all. I do think there's a relationship. And if if uh, you actually got at a word that was really on my heart as I was writing, and that's the this notion of rootedness. Mm-hmm. I think when you take the fruit of the spirit, purposely using the word fruit as a singular, uh, meaning we don't have the option to have love, but no patience. We don't have the option to have, you know, goodness, right. but not self-control. We have to have all of them. I think there is a wholeness there and a rootedness there that really could be unique to the Christian faith. Um, those who aren't participating in the sea of outrage we see today or the what's just an ocean of division, but who are rooted in self-control and patience and wisdom. Uh, so I think the relationship between between you know the concept of dividing them out as fruits of the spirit, when we really should say the fruit of the spirit, mm-hmm. is getting at this rooted wholeness. And I really wanted that at the end of the book. I really wanted a you know, this book is not going to be utterly life changing for many people. But what I wanted to get them, what I wanted readers to get a taste of is, it's it's okay for me to be stable and rooted. I don't have to be flying this way and that way all the time. I can just be a rooted, reasonable person. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. On fighting there, just talk about, you know, whole foods versus like having a <laughs> banana split, you know, division versus wholeness. But uh, maybe I'll cut that. I, I, I should probably cut that out. Uh, I like that answer, too, because uh, it helps you see the connection between the gifts, but also without a rigid order or sequence um, that these things are related to, you know, that love is directly related to peace and self-control in some ways. And then as you're thinking about the creative and endlessly fascinating connections you can make in your own life between um, some of these uh, characteristics, because um, you you emphasize love is the anchor. Uh, and the two places you talk about the structure, love is the anchor or the fountainhead. Uh, and then self-control as that final entry in the list. Um, I thought that was a good connection, too, to the way that the chapter unfolds as well. The self-control kind of harkens back to, well, there are some things you have to avoid. Yes. Um, but the the bulk of the fruits of this fruit of the spirit is flowing from this fountainhead of love. Mm-hmm. Um, and you even talk about there are plenty of places where, we uh, are told to not indulge uh, the sinful desires, but we're being encouraged to indulge these. Mm-hmm. There is a place right. yes. in the Christian life for extravagance. Um, and it's, yeah. you know, 
uh, to eat these fruits, you know, and you won't have a stomach ache. This is this is the <laughs> the way in which you do that. And and I, I like how you kind of come back at the end of the book to the structure of Galatians, where uh, Paul has this remarkable statement: "Against such things, there is no law." That's right. Um, so you know, thinking you know, let loose, uh, let loose. That's right. Yeah. Spirit. And, and one another in love. Yeah. Yeah, and in that sense, there's a reason why we don't see people uh, clamoring for, uh, you know, to be the, you know, it's not this huge competition to be the most loving or the most humble. <laughs> uh, it's, you know, it's a different disposition of, you know, self-acclaim or, you know, success or something like that. That's right. Uh, but the possessing these and pursuing these fruits or these, you know, the gifts of the spirits, as Paul talks about in Corinthians, pursue these pursue the greater gifts and you know, of course the love chapter there so as you're as you're thinking about the project as a whole its contemporary application and just some of the exegetical theological work you did was there anything like in the process of writing uh, a surprising discovery mm -hmm. or something that stood out to you about the process of writing because we've talked before about the way that you know we write as a product of what we're thinking, but also sometimes writing is the, the path to That's clarifying right. what we're thinking. Um, so it, is there any of those that st stood out to you about this particular project? Yeah, that's a fun one. Um, I, it's hard because there were, th this project was really convicting because you're obviously working through the kind of person who can adequately be described by the fruit of the spirit is such a, Christian person. And so, of course, when you're writing about love, all the times in which you're unloving come to mind. And when you're writing about patience, right. you're like, you know, you have none of it and et cetera. Um, or when you're writing about peace, you feel all this division. And so there's a little bit of, there was just so much conviction. And I, I was just, you know, kind of consistently praying that the Lord would make me the kind of man that could be described by the fruit of the spirit. But I would say I'm a little more directly I there's something I enjoyed about writing each chapter, but for some reason, I really enjoyed the patience chapter. It was probably my favorite chapter to write of the whole book. Um, I wouldn't have guessed that going into the beginning writing, writing process, but um, that concept, it was funny. I was writing that chapter. I was trying to get the ball rolling for that chapter, and actually my wife was doing some a little Bible study in the same room as me. And she was working through uh, she was working through a bit of literature in the Pentateuch, and she just said, "Why is this so hard? Like there is this is just so difficult." And I thought, mm -hmm. that's exactly right. And it it helped me kind of get over my writer's block of oftentimes where the Lord does the work is in the wrestling, the patient mm -hmm. wrestling of spiritual development and Christian maturity. We mm -hmm. often want to arrive at a destination. Of course we do, and and we will one day. We'll see him, right? We will arrive at a destination. But often the sanctification happens in that wrestling. And so I pick up on a theologian named Matthew Levering, and he has a phrase in a book of his where he talks about the, the Christian posture being one of uh, the limp of Jacob and the awe of Moses. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I really like that phrase. Uh, what he means by that is um, the limp of Jacob, as you can recall from the pericope of Jacob wrestling with the Lord, he walks away with a dislocated hip. And Levering is challenging us, like, wrestle. Wrestle with the things of God 
wrestle in such a way that you walk away a little bit limping. You know, we mm -hmm. should. We should put in the work and have the patience to wrestle because theological wisdom is not microwavable. It's going to take some wrestling. Mm -hmm. But the, the good news is hopefully, by the grace of God, the product of the wrestling is the awe of Moses. When he comes down from Sinai and his face is so radiant that he has to put a veil over um, his face. And that concept was really meaningful to me. Uh, I, I talk about in that chapter, and I think I'd, I'd say it elsewhere in the book, my freshman year of college, I had a pretty severe theological shakeup. Just didn't know what I was going to do. And for the first time, was like doubting a lot. And it was about a six-month kind of existential crisis period for me. And it was in that period where I, I read Hebrews 6. And Hebrews 6 is difficult for so many reasons. Mm -hmm. But actually, the reason I read it wasn't for um, matters pertaining to salvation, but it was about when whoever wrote Hebrews says, uh, "We, you are on elementary doctrines, like mm -hmm. washing of hands, raising the dead, etc. And he says, but you should be moving on to maturity. And there's a little clause in Hebrews 6 that says, and we will do this, move on from elementary mm -hmm. doctrine to Christian maturity, if God wills. Right. We'll do this if God wills. And I remember that phrase just thinking, there is not enough prayer in my theological life because I'm not going to move on from mm -hmm. elementary, doctrine, elementary doctrine onto maturity unless God wills it. And so that little time in my freshman year, I spent a lot of time in prayer just asking the Lord, hey, I need you. I need you to show up here. My mind is restless. Would you allow me moving on to theological maturity? And that developed a patience that I'm really grateful for. Mm -hmm. And so that chapter, um, to answer your question, was probably the thing that surprised me the most. And I wanted to keep going on it. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, so the patience chapter. Yeah, that's, that's excellent. That's very helpful. I thought of when you first started that, of the process of writing a book like this um, about the, the joy of the fruit of the spirit and this gospel hope. And I thought about this in relation to the gospel centered kind of emphasis of a previous, you know, decade or so ago, but sometimes that emphasis on the, these fruits of the spirit or this gospel centeredness can, if we're not careful, be a means that, you know, the accuser um, yes. comes to us and says, well, this is a high standard, but you don't meet it. Um, and so it's the same gospel that that same gospel expectation that prompts that that provides the answer mm -hmm. for us. Um, mm -hmm. So I thought that was I appreciate that that you can see that kind of running like a nerve center. Yes. Um, throughout the book, I also did think um, when you're talking about this kind of dynamic of like the guy that uh, won an award for uh, humility, but they <laughs> they took it away from him because he had the audacity to accept it. That's right. <laughs> so. That's kind of the, I don't know how that would fit into the marketing of this book. but That's uh, exactly you know, right. Yeah. You know, it's like, like they're going to re revoke this contract, you know. <laughs> because, um, but yeah, so I, I really appreciate uh, that you just kind of working through some of the uh, points of, of your book uh, and then just kind of really just this, this, I appreciate this, uh, this emphasis because um, uh, in some ways your book is unique and in other ways, it's not unique in the sense of these are um, uh, an emphasis that has been struck in a number of ways uh, throughout the great tradition, but um, it's a, it's an ever evergreen, ever timely uh, reminder and you, you put it together in a really helpful way. 
Um, the last question here is just really a more uh, general reflective question or devotional question, really. Uh, I like to ask, uh, there's a lot, and we've kind of already hit on this because of the subject of, of your book, but there's a lot going on in our world that is discouraging, uh, but what is something that gives you hope? I love that. I um, I try to be somewhat of an optimist. It's it's difficult, but I really do try. Um, so it was meaningful to me even that you said you you picked up on the optimistic hint within fruitful theology. Um, and I would say there's a lot that gives me hope um, right now. Even obviously the the gospel is my ultimate hope. And um, but I would say there's I do feel a that word that I was after in fruitful theology that rootedness. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's more and more people, maybe it's just the people that I'm kind of paying attention to right now, but that are seeing that the unrooted life is not a life worth living, um, kind of constantly fluctuating between, you know, social media trends or whatever political devastation is happening or the amount of infighting that's happening, at least in the U.S., um, those kinds of things. Uh, it's just not joyful to be constantly living an unstable life. And so I see I see an emphasis on stability and really even one of the things I try to bring out in the book too is an emphasis on beauty as well, kind of those transcendentals, the beautiful, the true, the good, um, rooting ourselves in that so we can have a, a kind of stability that's unique to those who understand the gospel. And so I was after that in the book. I'm after that in my own life, a kind of rooted stability that comes from Christian wisdom in the gospel. Um, and I see it in some of my friends. And so I, I think that's probably one of the things that's giving me the most courage uh, or encouragement right now. Yeah, that's good. The nature of hope uh, being something that we can see in our uh, in in the things that we believe, but also that being worked out in others uh, is very encouraging. So. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for this work. It was uh, edifying to read, and I know that uh, those who will, uh, those who are going to read it, um, uh, will be edified as well. Um, and I appreciate your heart in that, as you know, as you uh, do that. So, and also, thanks for coming on down the hall here. Hey, man, this was a treat. You, you um, chatting. Yeah, it was an honor. I really do appreciate it. Your, your questions were insightful and uh, encouraged me. So, I really do appreciate what you're doing here, man.